Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's new podcast. So here at the Centre, we're focused on driving change through research, economic analysis and influencing policy. And we're focused on bringing about equality in mental health. And this podcast is an opportunity to learn a bit more about what we do, uh, what drives the people that work here and the work that we're doing at the moment. And in this first episode, I spoke to our chief executive, Sarah Hughes, to find out a little bit more about her journey and what drives her in the fight for mental health equality. We're here today with Sarah Hughes, who's the Chief Executive of Centre for Mental Health, and we're delighted to have you here to tell us more about the centre. So, when people talk about Centre for Mental Health, they ask us a lot of questions about who we are and what we do, and I'm pretty sure we all give slightly different answers Mm. because we're quite a complex organisation. So, how would you explain the centre? I feel like this is the most important exam question ever. Yeah. So um, I think the Centre for Mental Health is a not-for-profit think tank. I know that that term is quite controversial but it's partly because um, we do the thinking on behalf of the mental health system. So you know we, we do research, we have policy influence, we cultivate um, uh, people's lived experience and, and generate a lot of information for the system and try and translate academic information so we do a huge amount of that thinking behind the scenes and I always kind of describe us as as the geeks in the back room that are kind of doing all the you know I think we're like the um, version of I would well I would say this like the apple gurus <laughs> I think that we're, <laughs> we're that take for that. the system yeah um, uh, and, and I think there's something about us being independent and the fact that we don't provide services directly that allow us to kind of take that step backwards from what's going on in services what's going on um, in in delivery pathways etc so that we can kind of really think about the evidence really translate it well understand the impact on practice but ultimately we're focused on ensuring that people get access to the best services that they could possibly can that commissioners are spending their money uh, on the things that actually make a difference and ultimately people with um, mental illness have the opportunity to get better. Amazing. I think that sums us up in a nutshell. Um, how how would you say that we do that? Because that's like a whole other question in itself. Oh, my God. I know, I'm sorry. Um, well, um, you know, I think we do it in a huge amount of ways. I think we do that in partnership and collaboration with the sector. So we work hand in hand with other organisations. We, you know, we work with academic partners. So we'll take their research and we'll say, OK, um, you know, most of us are not boffins, so we need to translate it for, um, you know, public, for the system. So we do that kind of really, um, you know, desk type work where we're looking at research and saying, actually, what does it mean on the ground? Um, we undertake economic analysis. And, you know, whilst we don't like putting pounds on people's lived experience of mental distress, we the reality is that we know that we can't really make changes within the system without really understanding the cost and how we invest and make the best decisions. So we do uh, undertake lots of kind of economic analysis. Um, one of the things that, that you do actually, Thea, is, is you really help us hold the lived experience narrative throughout. So you, you know, you bring in people with lived experience who write blogs for us. Uh, we have a writer in residence programme. And that's really, again, about making sure that we're held to account really Mm -hmm. so that things that we're saying you know the research that we're translating or any policy position that we have is informed by that lived experience narrative and that's not to say that you know quite a few 
few of us in the organisation have our own lived experience too. So it's about bringing all of that together and, and being able to offer our partners within the system a level of understanding of you know, not only academic research, but all of the things that are going on at the moment. And mental health is a very, very busy space. And I think we try and make sense of that on mm. behalf of those who don't have time to. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a key element of what we do and, yeah, and how we're trying to help the whole system mm. Um, mm. just change the nation's mental health. And um, something we talk about a lot at the centre is kind of equality in mental health and equality mm. for people with mental health problems. And I just kind of wondered, like, what that means for you? Well, it's really interesting, actually, because I feel really inspired by somebody I met earlier on today, Natalie from um, Black Thrive, who... Um, you know, we had a great conversation about equality and I think one day that I know what I'm talking about and then I meet somebody like Natalie and I think, oh gosh, actually, I'm not quite sure. But effectively, what, what I understand by equality is that people um, get the help that they need that's right for them when they need it. Um, but that being said, I think our approach at the centre is taking it back a step, which is saying... What is it in our system, in our society, that is creating the conditions for people to have worse mental health? So, you know, um, Natalie and I, for instance, were talking about um, systemic racism. We were talking about systemic poverty. All of these things that, that we have created as a society that fundamentally contribute to poor mental health and illness. And until we can really tackle those systemic issues, then we're not going to achieve equality. I mean, that's that's my mm -hmm. basic principle. And and um, I keep saying that, you know, we can provide the best mental health treatment in the world. And I think in some instances we really do. But if we're not tackling those systemic mm -hmm. inequalities, we're never really going to make the true difference that people need to see to, to ensure that, you know, we're not seeing generational levels of ill, Ill, Ill health in, in, you know, certain groups of people. And, and we know some of these answers and it's just about making them happen. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I guess from my, where I sit, my understanding is that it's kind of saying we need better mental health services, we need better access, but ultimately, even if we do all of those amazing things, if we're not tackling basic things like poverty and poor housing and um, childhood deprivation, then we're not truly gonna see an end to these problems. No. Um, and we will keep seeing more and more people coming through, kind of generational mm -hmm. um, mental illness, just struggling because these basic needs aren't being met. Quite. And I think, you know, one of the frustrations, the deep frustrations for me is that that's common sense, right? That, you know, I mean... Yes, indeed. <laughs> duh. You just think, of course, this is this is the thing that we need to do. But, but, but it's the most difficult thing to achieve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I'm really reflective of this conversation that I had with Natalie, Natalie today because I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, what's our personal responsibility, organisational responsibility, mm -hmm. and... You know, I think at the centre we take our responsibility very seriously in that, you know, um, we're constantly referring back to inequality. We're constantly saying, you know, well, it's all well and good us talking about the more acute end when somebody's already poorly. But when we know we've had dozens of opportunities to change that person's life mm. and we haven't taken them, that's a problem. You know, when that child is excluded from school, you know, we're setting them on a path. But the education system is not fit for purpose. So 
whose fault is that? Mm. And we're constantly saying, you're going to get me on a rant now. No, 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 no. But, you, you know, there, there is something for me about, you know, we, we're constantly saying to individuals, you need to be more resilient. You need to deal with your stuff. You need to be stronger. You need to be able to manage your money better. Um, but we don't talk enough about, I don't think anyway, about the system and about the system's responsibility to not put people in a position where they're suffering. Yeah, totally. Um agree with all of that amazing um so i know that you have worked in mental health for Oh, quite a very few long years time. let's say years. okay i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna yeah, well, like, age right, you, but, right. um <laughs> but yeah we'd love to hear a bit more about your background mm. and it's been varied yes. and colorful and i'd love to hear about it thank you well <laughs> um i love talking about my background uh, part, partly because you know i just love, love talking about myself but um i also love talking about the work that i've done because i've always felt it's been a huge privilege so I got my first job in mental health when I was 15 and I worked in um, what was called at the time a provision project for people who'd been in long-stay psychiatric hospitals and who'd been discharged into the community and I worked in in a home that was around the corner and I was their events coordinator which simply meant at the time actually that um, me and uh, the people who lived there used to go to McDonald's on a Saturday that was basically the the extent of the entertainment then which I look back and think oh my god Um, but uh, and, and also I have grown up in a family where you know mental illness wasn't a stranger so so for me you know whilst I've worked formally for 30 years I've lived all my life Mm. um in in mental illness with with mental illness in my space so uh it it feels like that's a really important part of my story Mm. that, that I really understand mental illness up close and personal um but that first job I remember not only feeling incredibly at home so you know I was familiar I didn't feel scared or worried um I made some really good relationships with people and and I liked the people that I was working with and very very quickly I thought this is actually the job that I want for my life I think this is it isn't it and I you know the other option was archaeology so I oh, wow. went with going to Egypt and just digging up mummies but I, yeah, I, I decided different. it's quite different but I did go for social work training and and, and actually I had to take a year out because I was too young when I left school to take a social work degree and so I had to take a year out and in that year I did a lot of um, I basically worked for uh, a mind organization and worked for you know a long time in housing and in their day service and Mm. um, then worked in their uh, again their residential homes where people had been discharged from long-stay hospitals and I remember it was at that point that I had been you know, working with people who'd been discharged from hospital for a long time Mm -hmm. and meeting people who'd been in hospital up until that point for like 30, 40, 50 years. I remember women who'd been put in hospital for being precocious, women who'd been put in hospital for being unmarried mothers and, you know, people who'd been put in hospital for all that time. And that would not happen now. And so, uh, and I did that work for a long, long time. And then I I got my first manager's job when I was, um, well, I'd been a manager, but this was my first proper manager's job of a a project, um, which was a therapeutic community for women Mm. in um, North London, run by an organization called Tulip. And I was 23, so I was really young. The people who, 
were living in that project were women with a diagnosis of personality disorder okay. that couldn't stay anywhere else, that nowhere else would take them because they were self-harming at quite a great degree, um, uh, other placements had broken down. And it was probably the most challenging but mm. rewarding job that I think I've ever had. You know, it was, we lived and worked alongside the women that lived there. So, you know, staff lived there and we opened, so I opened the home, uh, wow. you know, I, uh, it was kind of a massive deal at the time. Mm. And I did that job for three years. It was incredibly challenging and, and heartbreaking when I left, but you know, it was time and, and um, I think for jobs like that, sometimes it is time limited, but uh, I look back with fondness and uh, uh, the women who lived in, in the home still wrote to me for some time afterwards, mm. which was a wonderful thing. And I went from that job to managing mental health services in Holloway Prison and opened the first night in custody service, yes. which was um, for women who'd never been in prison before, but who'd been obviously sentenced. And the first night in custody um, process was really to help them make that transition. And, and that's, uh, thinking about it now, it's really hard to kind of put into words what that meant. And so it meant for some women that they had gone to court in the morning for a minor offence, thinking that they would be home in the afternoon to pick their children up. And of course they weren't. So wow. part of our job would be to help find someone to look after their children or um, you know find out where their children were because sometimes their children would be taken into care it was a painful job and and again um, at the time I worked with Nick O'Shea who's actually our chief economist mm -hmm. now um, but at the time he was a researcher for a revolving doors organization and we undertook a piece of research on the women who were coming in and we found that 95% of the women coming into prison for the first time uh, had mental health problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, huge numbers of women uh, mostly had trauma, uh, you know, domestic violence, sexual abuse as a child. I mean, the list goes on. And we were able to convey this to Julian Corner, who was working at the Social Exclusion Unit at the time, and who then, as part of the um, Cabinet Office, rolled it out across the UK. And so First Amazing. Line in Custody became a standardised service within the prison system and it still exists today and I feel very proud of that. I mean I think it's quite different probably from, from what it was like when we started out but nonetheless it is part of the baseline service yeah. in prisons today. But it was very sad and I don't think this has changed, certainly that women would come into prison, they would you know sometimes come from you know prostitution or homelessness, drug addiction, we'd get them into the prison, we'd look after them because the prison environment could be very containing and, and therapeutic. And then we would um, send them out again and you know, two weeks later they would come back in, in the same situation mm. as they were when the first time they'd come, come in. So that revolving door experience was very, very difficult. And there were days when I would see women come in in such despairing conditions. And I think of all the jobs that I've had, that's probably the most disturbing job that I've had. Sure. But I think yeah. um, it felt really difficult. Mm -hmm. It felt really difficult to do the right thing. Um, and yeah, so, so I did that for another three years and then I moved to Cambridgeshire and I got a job a lovely job as chief executive of a very small local mind organisation and when I started there were four members of staff and uh, throughout the years that I worked there 
which was 13 in the end, I merged uh, three organisations, I think, together with another periphery organisations around it yeah. and um, kind of left it with nearly 200 members of staff and uh, services all over Cambridgeshire, Peterborough and, and part of Lincolnshire. And we worked in prisons in the community alongside, uh, you know, wards. Uh, one of the biggest achievements was certainly developing um, a service for people with uh, personality disorder, mm. uh, developing a crisis service, and we had two sanctuaries uh, providing support in people's homes. Um, and that was, again, a really amazing job, you know, I think amazing to see what the third sector can do, what people who, you know, people will consider people, the, the staff that work in charities, not to be like professionals or, you know, actually what you'll find is that people in charities doing extraordinary work, you know, keeping lots of people alive when mm. the statutory services can't. So, you know, I, I really do believe that the third sector offers some a, a unique value to the system, and and so I'm very proud of that, really. And you know, I've done lots of courses in between, and you know, I'm doing a doctorate now, which might actually kill me. But um, <laughs> the, the reality is, is that you know, when I look back, I'm I'm very proud of the work that mm. I've been part of. That is incredible. And then you ended up here. And then I found myself <laughs> to the centre. And I have to tell you, I mean, I've, I've obviously known of the centre all my working career, because if you work in mental health, you're going to know about the Centre for Mental Health. I mean, that's just basically it. Um, and it will have informed your practice and your view of things. And when I applied for the job, I honestly didn't think I'd get it. I thought, um, I can't imagine I would get such an important job. And so when I did, it took me a while to believe that I had. And I'm here nearly three years and I still can't quite believe it. And so some days I kind of walk in and think, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. And But I'm very lucky. And this is an extraordinary opportunity because again when you're on the front line and I must say this because this is I think just a bit of a shout out for us really um, when you're on the front line you think why can't policy just be quicker why can't people just fix up why can't we just have decisions more quickly why isn't it that this isn't happening why isn't it that and actually now I'm in this situation I'm kind of like ah uh, this is why it takes so long. <laughs> and it's difficult, yeah. you know, it's difficult to influence policy. It's difficult to make sure that politicians are have got the right information and that the system has the right information and taking a while to make sure that people can listen and understand what's going on. Yeah, it's no mean feat. So I can't kind of sit here and say this is an easier job to mm. the ones that I've had in the past. It definitely has other challenges. And you're right, it can be painfully slow and there's things that we've been working on for ages and saying, this needs to change and that needs to change and then sometimes finally you get that moment of change and you think we did it something mm. happened but it can be difficult kind of waiting mm. and, and it's frustrating kind of seeing the stuff that's going on in services and seeing what's going on in the front line and thinking they need change now not in five years right. and so that's the frustration isn't it but and I'm not known for my patience <laughs> and I'm not known always for my um, powers of diplomacy. So there have been a few meetings that I've attended and I know that um, Andy or colleagues will have looked at me and thought, oh God, she actually said that out loud. So <laughs> I think I have so been a bit of a, <laughs> it's been a baptism of fire. Um, <laughs> so that's amazing. I guess I'm going to give you a really difficult question now, which is kind of asking you to, if you had to choose just three, kind of your top three burning issues in mental health mm. what would they be sorry I, I, I think one. that's such a difficult question uh, but an important one I mean I think I think I would say that 
addressing systemic inequality is fundamentally it that until we do that we are we are not going to see the progress that we could be making so the other other things could be you know digital progress um pharma progress all of those things i could say you know those they, they would be really great to move on they will not touch the sides if we don't address systemic inequality. And, and that means a whole cross-department focus on mental health. You know, it, it kind of affects every aspect of life. And until we really accept that that's the truth in the UK, we're not going to progress. So I think that's just the one burning issue. I think there is potential to deal with things around children, young people and, and you know, ease the kind of suffering that some of them experience. And I think there are things that we could do in education. I think there are things that we could do in public health. And I think there are things that we could do to mitigate suffering. Mm. And that's the thing about services and, you know, improving access and doing all of that, making sure that different people's needs are met. You know, one size doesn't fit all. Um, but I come back to the piece, which is we know what causes ill health. Let's really, you know, lean in on that space mm -hmm. and uh, create the conditions in which people can thrive. Amazing. Completely. I mean, that was one issue, but I'll, I'll let you have it because that's a pretty massive one. <laughs> that's a big one. I think, I think that covers a lot. <laughs> and, and this is maybe a little bit of a tricky one as well, but I guess I was just sort of thinking about what changes you think we can expect to see in mental health health over the next few years? Well, I mean, I do think that with the focus of children and young people at the moment, and rightly so, that we might see um, a number of innovations. I think we might see a turnaround in terms of investment, and I think, again, rightly so. I think we're going to see maybe a pattern of connection between education and health. Uh, which is incredibly important and certainly we at the centre will be pushing for that and I know the Children and Young People's Coalition will be pushing for mm. that. So there's something for me about really um, watch the Children and Young People's space right now and I think we've got some great organisations doing some interesting work around accessing, you know, getting children to access support more informally. You know, uh, I think again, one of the other things that's going to happen over the next five years for sure will be digital mental health. Mm. And that's both in terms of, you know, social media and what social media can, can do to mitigate poor mental health, but also digital for health. Yes. So, you know, what, uh, programs, applications, platforms can do to, to encourage mental health as opposed to kind of thinking about mitigation. You know, what treatment plans can, can be offered via digital platforms. Um, for instance, we know that, that Samaritans are going to launch a web chat service. You know, all these sorts of things, you know, digital health is going to be massive over the coming five years. And so we really have to see and monitor monitor that really. Because again, you know, the note of caution for me is about, you know, let's not pretend digital stuff is going to be the hero of our times. Sure. Because I think we just don't know yet mm. where it can be. So note of caution, but huge optimism too for what could be. Um, I guess I, I think that there is also something for me about global mental health and there was a great piece by Richard Horton around 
um, activism and mental health and, and I'm currently writing a piece on social movements and mental health because I do think that much of what we need to do is hold on to our activism because you know it's very easy to when you think oh you know we've got a bit more of, of money you know we've got a bit of an investment that's great um, we're still nowhere near parity of esteem we're still nowhere near equality we're still nowhere near really addressing uh, the, the social causes of, of mental illness so so I think that we need to let our activism and campaigning and that kind of fire that rages yeah. sort of re-emerge because I think it's been quiet. It's like a dragon <laughs> tamed in a cave or something. But actually, it's not a bad idea if it emerges a bit because I think, you know... Um, we don't really make change when we're sitting in a room all agreeing with each other. That's totally, not where yeah. change happens. So whilst I'm not sitting here saying, right, that's I'm going to chain myself to number 10 railings, although that could be a possibility. <laughs> I can't tell you what might happen in I five I mean, go years. for it, yeah. No, I mean, I can see it happening. But anyway, there Sweet. is something about mental illness being political, social, yeah. as well as that kind of medical, you know, making change through policy influence. All of that is true. Um, but I don't, I think we as an organisation are, are less worried now about being a little bit more challenging than yeah. we probably have been before yeah there's that kind of like it's cliche but the critical friend element yeah and I think absolutely. there's I guess that's on a spectrum isn't it of how mm. how critical how much of a friend you can be and I guess yeah that's something that we're sort of harnessing a bit more yeah and there's something also about you know I know that we're all in this trying to do a good job you know I don't believe anyone wakes up in the morning and thinks oh I'm gonna be shit today <laughs> sorry for swearing you can but there is something you know I think I think there is something that's really important about holding us all to account so that's also about people saying to us at the centre you know you're not saying enough about this or you know when you said that you actually missed the point or whatever and that's that's fine you yeah. know we are all in this to get to a kind of better place and so I think that's I, I hold us to a high account as I hold the system to a high account and that's the only way I can see change happening yes completely we need more of that okay so I just wanted to finish up with one final thing it's less mental health related but we just wanted to ask you kind of I wanted to know who inspires you the most right now Oh, that is a, such a tricky question because I can got only a have one person. Oh my god! I know. I'm sorry. That's I'm cruel. Cool. Okay, you can have three. Can I have three? Yeah. Okay, that's really important. Look how easy I Otherwise, I was going to faint. Then. <laughs> um, so the first person I would have to say is um, so these are people that I don't know well, but people I basically stalk on Instagram. That's and absolutely some of acceptable. them I've made my friends, but ultimately <laughs> um, they're people that I feel that I've learned a huge amount from. So the first person is Scotty, and Scotty is an artist that has done a huge amount of work around class, huge amount of work around LGBTQ experience and exclusion, and has helped me make sense of quite a lot of my own experience. Uh, you know that I talk about class a lot, so Scotty has done, you know, helped me translate a lot of that into some kind of sense because I think sometimes I've been confused and overwhelmed by it and he's been amazing and uh, if you don't follow him already do. Um, I think I've got so I'm just going to talk about them in bulk. Is my uh, peers female leaders and I have got 
I, I can't tell you a list as long as my arm of women leaders that I know and love within the system. And again, I learn from them every day. And I'm, you know, Poppy, uh, Poppy Jaman, Tessie Ojo, Jackie Dyer, uh, Kate Lee, Deborah Alcott Tyler, you know, Karen Bradshaw. I'm going on and yeah, on. Yeah, no, no, I'm that's dying. okay. That's okay. Vicky Browning. Um, uh, there are Kathy Evans. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I mean, I tell you, the list goes on and on. And um, these women uh, really do not only inspire me on a daily basis but provide me with a huge amount of support Polly Neat I mustn't Polly Neat Catherine Sachs-Jones um okay I've got to stop there because it's all right it's okay uh, yeah but you know they inspire me every day but also help me out call me out and that's the other thing about you know these uh, women leaders that I um, stand by you know we don't have we don't sit around in passive agreement with each other all the time you know we call each other out when we need to be we support and love each other when that's important we hold each other's hand when things are tricky and I absolutely couldn't do my job without them um, and really think that for anybody working in any role that you need to have kind of peer support really and so yeah those women inspire me hugely and there's a massive as I say a massive list and I think that uh, one of the things that I would say about people that really kind of inspire me on a you know national scale really in the mental health system you know there is a load of people great people doing amazing things and great people that have been doing this work for decades <laughs> you know that have really been plugging away and that doesn't stop I think that's that's a lot of inspiring people. That's a lot of in, in your list people. of three. So I, I'm I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's amazing, and we could go on chatting all afternoon. I'm yes. sure, but I will leave it there for now. Um, thank you so much for speaking thank to us, and me. I'm sure we'll be chatting to you again soon. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the first ever Centre for Mental Health podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, and if you'd like to know more about us or to donate to our work, just visit us at www.centreformentalhealth.org.uk.